to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and I'm all alone today because we're just bringing you a little bit of a remastered edition of one of our favorite episodes of the podcast. You know, we're right in the middle of hatching season for turtles. And if you live in North America or, you know, maybe anywhere else in the world where turtles are hatching, you're seeing neighborhoods where turtle crossing signs are up. You're seeing beaches be protected so that the hatchlings can make their way to the water. You're seeing notifications that this is happening. And what you're also seeing is probably a lot of turtles. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to bring back one of our most popular episodes of all time. But, you know, it's old enough that maybe some of our new followers have never actually listened to it. So what you're going to hear is my conversation with Beth Ranke, who is an evolutionary biologist that studies painted turtles. So we're going to talk about painted turtles, of course, but it's also a really interesting discussion about color. So I'm going to check in at the end, but right now, please enjoy the curious case of the painted turtle with Dr. Beth Ranke. It is great to talk to you today. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm really excited to know what you're, what are you working on? What are you doing? What makes you happy right now? Yeah, James, thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Let me tell you about this thing that I've been thinking about, like literally for years, and I've been working on it for a while, but it is still ever present in my research program and in my lab, and it's what I love to talk about the most, and it's turtle color. Why do turtles have the colors that they have? And specifically, why are painted turtles painted? Very glad that you specifically said painted turtles, because when you talk to me about turtle color, I'm talking about like mean and green and, and radical uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That That's my wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, painted turtles are cool, too. Um, less pizza, yeah. I'm assuming. Uh, so you've been thinking about this for a while. Why... Why are why are they why are they colorful? Is that is that a good thing? <laughs> That's the question, right? That's the million dollar question: is why are they colorful? We call them painted turtles because they have these bright uh, red or orange patterns on the ventral side of their shells, which is called the plastron, and they have sometimes bright yellow stripes, sometimes bright red stripes on their head, and all of these things together seem to make them really conspicuous, really obvious when they're swimming through a murky lake water, for instance. So the question is, what is the function of that color, if any? So my lab has worked on that in trying to address why painted turtles are painted. But before we really kind of dive into the nitty gritty, we should talk about what some of the functions of coloration in general are. I think that is a great idea because I don't really know what they are so instead of me politely agreeing with everything you said i think it would be great for me i'm sure the listeners know everything about color theory and how it works in biology but for me it might be good to have a bit of a refresh sure so color can have lots of different functions um, and sometimes it has no function at all so one of the first things that's important to do when you're studying coloration is determine 
is this an adaptive color? Does it have some role in improving the fitness of the organism? My favorite way to address it is to ask, is there a cost to making and expressing this color? If there's a cost and it doesn't have any benefit, it will get selected out throughout generations and it, it wouldn't be something that's maintained in that species. But if it has a cost and the benefit outweighs the cost, it's gonna be maintained in the population. The first thing we asked with painted turtles is, is there a cost to this color? And one of the easiest ways to get at that is, what is the color itself? What is the molecule that is making that color happen? In animals, color can be made one of three ways, either with a pigment, with a structure, or with a combination of the two. So do you know what I mean when I say like pigment versus structure? So I'm thinking about something like the color red versus like usually the color blue. I know that red pigment is something that that happens a lot. It's pretty prevalent in the animal kingdom, but like the color blue doesn't show up a ton. Am I getting at that or am I also wrong about that? No, you're totally on track. In fact, blue is such an interesting case because that is one of the few colors in the world that when we do have it in nature, it's pretty much never made via a pigment. There are no blue pigments. Uh, and let me put a little asterisk next to that, except for in a couple species that have very recently in the last decade been discovered that actually do make blue pigments. But for the most part, there are almost no blue pigments in the world. All blue is made by the differential refraction of light off of nanostructures or off of like different layers within the tissue of whatever organism is making that blue. That makes so much sense. So when you think about blue in our lives, we have the term blue blood and blue colors being religiously significant. You know, the Virgin Mary is always depicted with blue. Uh, the blue Buddha has, has a lot of significance. So the fact that it's just not that common makes so much sense now. And it also makes me think about like, well, a blue butterfly and talking about the bending of the light when the wings move, it's, it's like iridescent and, and shimmery and it's not like mm -hmm. a flat thing. Exactly. So anytime you're dealing with a color whose the hue changes with the angle that you're viewing it. So like a butterfly wing, like you're talking about, if you're looking at it straight on, it might look bright blue. If you're looking at it a little bit from the side, it might be a purplish or a black. That's called iridescent color. And that is always due to structure, some sort of structural element. This is not a pigment who absorbs different wavelengths of light, depending on what angle you're looking at. This is just a artifact of the way the light is refracting off of the tissues. That's so interesting. So that means that like my best friend Josh's 1999 Impreza with like the pearlescent paint that mm -hmm. he spent way too much on was just like a trick of the eye. It's exactly the same thing that butterfly wings are doing. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. correct. So when we're thinking about color in the natural world, the first thing we need to think about is that we actually have it all backwards. When you look in the woods, what's the dominant color in a forest? It seems brown. Brown or brown, green, green, right? You have lots of leaves. I was trying to lead you to green, but you're right. There's oh, lots no. of brown there too. <laughs> it it <laughs> works either way. <laughs> you're right. Good point. Generally in the woods, the leaves are out. You see a lot of green and the shrubs and everything. The reason we see green light is because that is the wavelength of light that is least important for the plants. They're absorbing every other wavelength of light. That green is the one that's not important. And so it gets reflected off. And that's what we see. 
Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, so basically what you're saying is like the eco, the eco color of green. It's like, uh, mixed messaging. If you really think about the biology of color, not the least important thing to be thinking about. So maybe they need to use every other wavelength than green in their, their messaging. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just, just a little bit of PR advice. Yeah. If you want to be biologically accurate, that's what you have to do. What you're saying is when we see a color, we're just seeing the leftovers from from everything that is hitting that pigmentation. Pretty much, but that doesn't mean that that color isn't important. So the example I just gave with plants, they need light in order to get energy. And in that case, they need every color except green. But when we're talking about organisms like animals, most of the time the color that is reflected or the color that's not absorbed is still really important because that's what matters to their survival. That's what other organisms are going to see. That's what predators are going to see. That, that is still really relevant to that animal uh, in some way. So this this is making me think of like camouflage where we're trying to like hide. I don't know why why I'm saying we are like I'm trying to hide, although I am pretty timid generally. So we're we're trying to hide and we're using color to do that. Can you tell me how that works? I know that it does work because I've seen pictures telling me it does. But how how does camouflage happen? Sure. So a lot of people, when they think of camouflage, they think of the army green pattern um, that we humans use when you're hunting or in the military. And animals do use similar techniques in order to blend in. Thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, the way that camouflage happens is really straightforward. Now, let's imagine you have a dark brown tree and you have five moths on that tree. Four of them are dark brown and one is a white. Which one do you think the predator is going to go for first? it's going to go for that white that beautiful beautiful white dinner right that's the easiest to see that's probably the first one it sees when approaching from a distance it's going to eat that white moth and what that means is that that moth is now dead it's not able to pass on its white moth color genes to its offspring the dark brown ones live to see another day maybe they can lay their eggs they can have offspring that are also have that dark brown gene so it really is pretty simple when we think about how camouflage coloration evolves in animals. Um, And it might be more widespread than you think. So a dark brown moth on a bark is really easy to think about, but imagine every single fish you've ever seen, for instance. Fish and birds and most insects all have this consistent pattern we call countershading, which means that their back is darker than their belly. And that's actually an example of camouflage. When you think about flying, for instance, if you're looking up at a bird, you can see their light belly, and that's going to blend in better with the downwelling sunlight. But if you're looking down at a bird, its dark back is going to blend into the ground. So animals far and wide have this countershading. This is true in fish, it's true in insects, just as a measure of camouflage, because they can be viewed from above or below and still blend into the typical light environment. And a great test of this countershading, of whether countershading is actually has a camouflage benefit, is that there are some caterpillars, for instance, that only hang out upside down on the bottom of leaves, and they show the reverse pattern. Their belly is dark uh, because it's actually facing up, and their back is light because it's always facing down. So is that similar to the white fur on the belly of a, of a deer? 
Exactly. My rural Pennsylvanianess is coming out. Where like, hold on, let's talk about white-tailed deer. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, in in that example, this doesn't mean that they have some sort of predator that's looking at them from the ground underneath their belly, right? That would be weird. But what it does mean is that there's not a selective pressure to have a darker coloration on the belly, and so maybe it's just easier to make white fur or something. Something through time has led to that to stay white, while the back has a darker brown or a lighter brown that blends in with the environment. Yeah. So I guess maybe we should should circle. Well, I don't, I don't want to say circle back necessarily, but but talk about very briefly, uh, since we're talking about things like fitness and and uh, some evolutionary concepts, does it take more energy to create pigment? Great question. So it depends on the pigment. So this was bringing it back to painted turtles. This was one of the first things we asked is if this coloration is adaptive, we expect that there might be some cost to making the pigment. Or, or we could ask if there is a cost to making the pigment to kind of get at whether this is a, a color that has an important function. So we, we did some fancy chemical things to ID the pigments or the structure that are in the painted turtle shell. And what we find is that the orange or red coloration is a pigment. And in this case, it was like hitting the pigment lottery, basically, because the pigment it was is called the carotenoid. Um, you may have heard of like beta carotene, vitamin A. Those are all carotenoid derivatives. And they're what make carrots orange. They make pretty much any orange vegetable you can think of. They give it that color. But what's cool about carotenoids is that they are the only pigment that cannot be synthesized by vertebrates. We cannot make it in any way. So for these painted turtles to have this orange pigment in their shell, they have to have gotten it from their food or from their mother uh, through the yolk. In fact, yolks are yellow or orange because of carotenoids. We now know it's not only a pigment that's creating this orange color, but it is a pigment that must take energy to get. They have to find it. They cannot make it. So getting back to your question about um, are there pigments that are cheap to make? Absolutely. Melanin, for instance, is a fairly cheap pigment to make. Most vertebrates can synthesize it. We can make it from whatever endogenous materials, other molecules we have. So we can create this um, usually brown, sometimes reddish color. Um, so mel if it was a melanin-based coloration, I'd probably say might not be adaptive, and then we kind of look at it from a different approach. But it's a carotenoid-based coloration in the painted turtle. And so we can say, there's a cost to obtaining it, and yet they still have it. So hopefully, so there's presumably a benefit that outweighs that cost. So that really got me thinking when you're talking about, like, they have to go out and find it. It takes energy for them to go out and find it. Does this display help with Hey, 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 kids, it might be time to, to tune out for a second because I, I want to talk about sexual selection. Uh, parents, I'm going to give you one Gregorian second to to think about whether your kids are ready to, to hear this. So they have to go out and they have to obtain this. So they're spending energy. And theoretically, I, I think the more pigment that they're producing would show that they're like, hey, I'm pretty tough. I can go and get all of this carotenoid pigment and create it. So does that play a role? 
Yes, I know that that was a very deliberate leading question, but yes, it very much <laughs> does. And in fact, we see that exact pattern you just described, where males uh, have some sort of carotenoid, carotenoid-based display in order to show off their foraging ability. We have we see exactly that in a lot of bird species, like cardinals and finches, that have carotenoid tinted beaks for instance where females will choose the male with the brighter beak because it implies that he has a better foraging ability but let me go back to part of what you asked a key word you said in your question was does this display so that's the first step with the painted turtle is is this color even a display right it has to be something that's obvious to potential mates in order for it to have a role in sexual selection so with birds they have a beak it's pretty easy to see that beak that's carotenoid colored or maybe they have an ornament or a crown or something that they can like literally lift up to display during courtship so the first thing we asked with painted turtles is if this is a sexual signal or if this has some role in identifying mates or even in um competing with other males, it has to be visible during that courtship period. So this orange coloration, and I primarily focus on the color on the plastron, the ventral side of the shell, this orange coloration is actually not very visible when they're mating. Males and females will face each other in the water um, at about the same level, and the males have these really long um, wolverine-like claws, and they vibrate them in the female's face. And I wish you could see the gesture I'm doing now because it's this is very accurate. This is what they do to the female's face. And if the female's receptive, she'll turn around and they copulate. In none of that is there some obvious display of this plastron. It, it might be incidental. Maybe sometimes it's visible just from the way they're swimming. But it is not something is not what you'd expect to see for a trait that would have a role in sexual selection. So I guess maybe even a a better and here's my anatomy geek coming out. Can turtles actually see this pigment? Can, can they view this color? Are they able to do that? Yeah, great question. So turtles, like reptiles, like most other reptiles and birds, are tetrachromats, which means they have four different photoreceptors. Humans are trichromats. We have one that's sensitive in the red wavelength, one in the green, and one in the blue, one type of photoreceptor. Birds and reptiles have this extra one that's sensitive to the ultraviolet spectrum. So this is kind of an aside, but when we were measuring the coloration, we measure it objectively with a spectrometer or with color standardized photography so that we're not incorporating human bias into our color. We're able to measure like how much does this reflect in the spectra that any animal could see, not just humans. And so we know that actually the plastron does not have an ultraviolet signal. Um, Some of the stripes on the neck do. And there have been some other labs that have done cool studies finding that the ultraviolet content of the neck stripes does seem to have a role in sexual selection. And those are visible when the male and female face each other. Females prefer males with more ultraviolet reflectance on their neck stripes. But that's not the orange shell that gives them their name of painted turtle. So as far as we know, they can likely see this orange coloration because they have better vision than we do. But in order to actually ask that question, we'd have to do what's called a visual model. And what that does is uh, gives us a way to quantify how obvious that color is um, against whatever the background is as viewed by the receiver, or in this case, it would be another painted turtle. Now, what limits us there is that there's only one lab in the world able to analyze every aspect of an eyeball to get us all the numbers that we need to do that visual model. It's actually at Purdue University in Indiana. 
So they, there are other labs that can do other components. And we know from previous work that other turtles have what we call oil droplets that are on the photoreceptors that can help focus the vision. We know a little bit, basically, from other species. But in order to get all the visual data we'd need, uh, you have to have a very, very fresh specimen. Like you have, It has to have died within five minutes of being at that lab. You can't freeze the eyes. You can't do anything because it damages the, the data you're collecting. So basically, it's very hard to get exact information about the painted turtle visual system. But from what we know about other turtle species um, and what little work has been done, most likely, almost definitely, I, I feel good saying they can see that orange color. We aren't able to quantify how obvious it is or how conspicuous it would be. So you're saying it's a little bit more complicated than holding a couple panatones in front of them and asking them how they feel about this color. <laughs> Much more complicated, yes. And it always turns out that way. Why mm-hmm. Why can't science just be easy? Yep, right? <laughs> oh, I guess it just wouldn't be fun then. We've kind of eliminated a bunch of stuff, and... I am running on empty as to what other things color can do for an animal. So what, what are other possibilities that you came into when you're like, so why this color in painted turtles? Yeah, so there's another function of color that we haven't yet talked about um, that's pretty much the opposite of camouflage, and these are warning colorations. So this is a color or a combination of colors that is extremely obvious to a predator, either to warn them of some sort of toxin or noxious behavior or something that's going to make it not worth it for either animal for that predator to attack the prey. So our classic example here is like a poison dart frog. They have highly contrasting colors. Sometimes you see neon green bright blue against black and so it's very obvious they also produce a toxin that's gonna make the predator sick at the least kill them at their worst and so predators can learn to associate those highly contrasting colors with this horrible feeling or sickness or learn from other predators especially with birds where they can learn from each other fairly easily to avoid that prey item. The other type of warning coloration, uh, this is less common than the one I was just talking about, which is called aposematism. The other type is um, involved in a display, and it's usually called a startle display or a diamatic display. And this is usually color that's typically hidden until the animal is attacked, where it suddenly displays the color in hopes of scaring away the predator. So an example of this, there are a lot of praying mantis species that have um, underwings that are bright red or pink, and when attacked, they'll suddenly display those bright colors, and that'll often at least cause birds to step back for a second and maybe give the praying mantis time to escape. So with painted turtles, we wondered, is this some type of warning coloration? Could it be aposematic or could it be a startle display? So for both of those things to work, the first thing we have to know is, is this coloration really obvious to predators? So I did some of those visual models we were just talking about, where we're able to quantify how much the painted turtle stands out against the background as viewed by some common predators. A really common predator of painted turtles are birds. And a really nice thing about bird vision is that their vision is highly conserved, which means that 
Lots of birds can see really similarly, and so we can safely make assumptions. We can say, okay, let's let's model how obvious this turtle is to these two different bird species that have two different types of vision, because that's going to cover something like the 50 species that we know eat the painted turtles.、Um, so we're able to do this, and not surprisingly, if you know anything about bird vision, they, they have pretty good vision and pretty good color vision. The orange coloration of the plastron is really obvious to them. It stands out against a grassy background, against a dirt. Background seems like they're really likely to be able to see it as conspicuous, but that doesn't tell us anything about the bird behavior or the predator behavior, right? It just tells us, okay, they can see it and it's obvious, but it doesn't tell us do they avoid it, basically. And maybe since you're talking about how they do eat them, <laughs> it might not be such a concern to them. <laughs> Exactly. They don't necessarily avoid turtles, but the thing is that adult painted turtles are so big that they aren't really eaten by many predators. So we really see most of the predation on painted turtles happening in the first year of life. So to actually test if we see maybe this is some sort of startle display that functions that way as a hatchling and then just never goes away in adults, basically maybe it's something like that. So to test that, I used a really classic clay model experiment where we had hundreds of painted turtle hatchling models that were painted to look like painted turtles or a control that didn't have that orange color, and these models had paint that were, that chipped off really easily. It was really annoying to take them out to the field, <laughs> but what that meant is any time something touched them or bit them. And、we'd be able to leave marks, and we could see. The whole other complicated process of this experiment was actually making the paint on those models match as closely as we could the reflectance spectrum of the painted turtle. Because if you take an orange color paint and you measure it with the reflectance spectrometer, what you actually see is a peak in the red and a peak in the yellow. You don't see the smooth orange coloration we see with painted turtles. So this this is a lot of paint testing to get us to the point where we can say this spectrum is going to look similar to a, to whatever predator as a painted turtle. Sure, like a long day at your Sherwin Williams, just just <laughs> testing things out. I do appreciate how meticulous and、uh, procedural your. Your work is, and I'm I'm starting to appreciate that even more as you're telling me the lengths that you've had to go to 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 find out what this dang color does. What about like I don't know? Is it like a radiator? Can can the orange make it less cool or more more warm?、Uh, potentially, but if it did, you'd think that we'd see that in lots of other turtles, and it's most of it's on the ventral side. Most of it's not really able to absorb sunlight, even if it's dissipating heat. We'd expect to see it in every other basking turtle species. Carotenoids aren't really limited in the aquatic environment. Painted turtles have to eat them, but they're pretty common in aquatic plants and algae. So not only is it the finding that's important with painted turtles, which again isn't super hard, but it's actually the、uh, absorbing and expressing. So all the energy that goes into absorbing the carotenoids in the small intestines and then moving them somewhere to be、uh, metabolized in whatever way, and then moving them to the shell tissue. There's energy in every one of those steps. So it's not even just finding that's limiting; it's every step. But if it was just thermal regulation, we'd expect to see other turtles that have the same color. That's true because thermal regulation is kind of important. I will cede the point to you on that. What about? I don't know. Does it? Is it protective? Can can it stop things? I mean, we've we've learned that it can't stop a hungry bird in、mm-hmm. in baby turtles, but does it protect from something else? Yeah. So. 
so the, the conclusion of my clay model experiment was that we found the orange ones were attacked just as often as the control. So it doesn't seem like it protects them in that visual way. But there are colors that serve a protective function in terms of providing an immune boost or literally aiding in the structure of whatever tissue it's in. So an example is there are pigments in bird eggs that as the female's calcium is depleting, the pigments take the place of that calcium in the eggshell in order to keep the shell from collapsing, basically. So we see in a lot of birds increased speckling, like increased brown spots as the female's laying eggs. So the, the last egg to be laid has way more speckling than the first because she's running out of calcium, basically. So there are uh, what we call non-signaling functions of pigments. So these have nothing to do with a signaler and a receiver, but instead have these physiological functions in improving the the integrity of the tissue in some way. As far as we know in painted turtles, that doesn't seem to be the case. They already have a really hard keratin-based shell like every other turtle. There's no particular reason that the painted turtle would need this extra pigment that no other turtle seems to use. They have these fancy orange colors on. Mm-hmm. Is this like a calling card? Is this like, hey, I am Thomas because my orange is displayed in this way and now you shall know me as such. Yeah, so interestingly, they do have the their colors on their plastron are unique to individual. So not only is there this bright orange, but there's kind of a black shape in the center. And that shape is unique enough that I'm able to identify individuals from year to year using photo identification software of just photos of the plastron. So this is what I was thinking and what people in my lab were thinking. We were thinking maybe this has some role in individual recognition. However, we again have this issue. They are never facing each other plastron to plastron. There's never this weird this display of this ventral side in a way that would be obvious enough that you think that they could. Additionally, as far as we know in turtles, which granted this is an area that's understudied, but they don't seem to be very social. We often see them living in large groups, but it seems to be because that's where the resources are. There's no hierarchies. There's no territories. There's nothing that you'd normally expect to see. Most of the animals that we know of that have patterns for individual recognition are actually eusocial, ones like wasps, because it's important to be able to identify those who belong to your family. With turtles, as far as we know, nothing like that. So we can rule that out, too. We'll get back to solving the mystery of painted turtles in just a moment, but first, a quick commercial break. Hello, Science Night listeners. My name is Mark, and I host the Podfulness Podcast. Podfulness is where you go when you want to find new podcasts to add into your rotation. Each week, I bring on a guest who talks about their favorite show and why they love it. Plus, we end each episode with some fun and games. Episodes are half as long as most other podcasts, but twice as joyful. If you're looking for podcast recommendations from podcast superfans, give us a listen. Just search for Podfulness on your favorite streaming platform. Podfulness. So at this point, we've ruled out camouflage. We've ruled out any sort of sexually selected signal. We've ruled out thermoregulation. Uh some sort of structural function. We've ruled out individual recognition. What other functions of color are there beyond all of those things? Yeah, I, I would love to know. I, I, I've been <laughs> said, no, that is not the case so many times. Uh, and I do love it. But, <laughs> but, but what are the other? What? Why? Why? Yeah, so this is ha- exactly how I was feeling as uh, I was a 
grad student. At this point, I was in my third or fourth year. I'd been asking all these questions and doing all these experiments and ruling out hypothesis after hypothesis for why painted turtles are painted, and it was getting really frustrating. So I kind of had to change the way I was thinking about this color. What if it's not the color that's important at all, but the molecule that is the pigment that happens to create this color? Maybe the color, the orange that we see and that's so obvious to predators and everyone, is actually a byproduct of some other function that the molecule does. And this isn't unheard of. There are lots of functions for carotenoids. I mentioned the birds that we know use carotenoid-based signals. The reason those work is because oftentimes those carotenoids also boost immune function. And so the pigment, the molecule, has a role that helps with the health of the individual. So maybe in painted turtles, it's not the orange color that's important at all. Maybe this isn't in any way a signal. And instead, is just stored there uh, to be used at another time. So this is the hypothesis, the final hypothesis I pursued, because what we haven't mentioned yet about painted turtles is one thing that makes them unique among turtles is that they're one of the few species of vertebrates that can freeze solid. They can tolerate complete freezing. What? Yeah. What? Right? Uh, hold on. They... When we're talking about solid here, we're talking about like it, it can get to like a little cold and they're fine, right? We're not talking about freezing solid, are we? We're talking ice cubes. We're talking like Walt Disney's head frozen <laughs> solid. Exactly. Right now, where you are in the Northeast in New England and just north of where I am, there are painted turtles in their nest. The nests are laid in early summer. The eggs actually hatch in fall. But a lot of the time in these northern climates, even though the painted turtles hatch out of their eggs, they don't leave the nest. They stay underground all winter long. And part of doing that is tolerating these, granted brief, usually about 12 to 24 hours, of complete freezing. So they haven't even seen sunlight yet, and they're not eating. Their metabolism shuts down entirely, and they can tolerate this ice formation all over their body. So they're essentially dead. They're Walt Disney's head frozen, right? <laughs> As you so nicely put it. Exactly. Sure. Obviously, because of Walt Disney and because of this interest in cryogenics, the DOD and federal funding have put a lot of money into studying how animals like the painted turtle can tolerate this freezing. But what has been uh, less studied is how they can tolerate the thawing process. So that thawing process is going to be just as dangerous and just as important to understand if we want to know how painted turtles and other animal, other vertebrates like wood frogs can do this. So during thawing, not only do you have to deal with this ice melting and blood starting to pump again, so something has to get the heart pumping, blood has to get moving, oxygen has to be taken to these tissues where there previously wasn't oxygen. All of that comes at this risk of what we call reperfusion injury. So reperfusion is just referring to putting, fusing oxygen back into tissues where, they were, where there wasn't oxygen before. Reperfusion injury is highly studied in humans because it's a risk of stroke and heart attack. Anytime you cut off blood from tissues and then reintroducing blood, you're risking reperfusion injury caused by an increase in uh, reactive oxygen species. Now, bear with me here. I know I'm throwing a lot of terms at you, but <laughs> these reactive oxygen species, or ROS, are a natural thing. They happen naturally, uh, but they're normally combated by antioxidants. So we get antioxidants from our diet. We have lots of endogenous ones. We ha they, they combat this ROS in order to prevent oxidative stress. Now, during reperfusion injury, there's way more ROS than normal because we get all this cellular respiration and everything kicking into overdrive, making leaky electrons that are creating lots of ROS. During the thawing process, 
animals that that can do this and can survive it without injury have to have a way to mitigate and to stop that reperfusion injury. So having a sudden burst of antioxidants to combat ROS could be a really valuable thing. Now, carotenoids are potent antioxidants. They really have potential to quench and to keep those ROS from becoming damaging. So we know, and this is partially from work I've done and work other people have done, we know that painted turtles have almost no oxidative stress upon recovery from freezing. They're not showing the stress that we'd expect to see in any other species that somehow survived the freezing process. They very well could die in the thawing process. Painted turtles don't have that. I did some work when I was at Dartmouth. We, we did lots of correlational studies where we looked at oxidative stress throughout the, the freeze and thaw process and measured the coloration of the shell throughout that freeze and thaw process. And what we found is that, do you want to guess? Found significance? You found a p-value that allowed you to get a doctorate? <laughs> well, they give you a doctorate even if your results aren't significant, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> Well, what we found is that the coloration does change throughout that time. They're moving carotenoids out of their shell somewhere internally uh, during that thawing process. And then they're popping them back in the shell afterwards once they're totally recovered. Oh, my God. So hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Does the pattern? So, well, I guess not, because you told me that it didn't. The pattern doesn't change. So it just goes back to the same place. Theoretically. Yep. That's awesome. Man, this is why I love biology. So. Not only are painted turtles apparently the coolest thing on earth, literally sometimes. (laughs) Yes. But instead of just like, I'm going to make an orange patch, they look awesome too. So Mm -hmm. it didn't have to do that. Nature didn't have to be awesome, but it always (laughs) is. Yeah, exactly. And before all the Disney adults come at me, I know Walt Disney's head is frozen. <laughs> just, just get over yourselves. Sorry, that had to be an aside because I, I heard the emails being typed all the way from the past. So, antioxidants are allowing painted turtles to do the coolest thing that I've ever heard of in real life. They're, they're like the thing that would survive the Snowpiercer um, <laughs> problem. <laughs> that's really cool and i really appreciate you talking about the process of getting to that point because it didn't seem like it was a very one-to-one situation yeah and here's my caveat too is what i just talked about is all correlational evidence we don't have the experimental evidence yet to say for sure that this is the function of the orange color so the the question of why are painted turtles painted still is unanswered officially but we have these clues that can lead us hopefully um once some some lab who wants to take up this uh, banner and keep running with it, who wants to keep painted turtles in their lab, which I don't want to do, <laughs> uh, are able to experimentally test this. So in grad school, I did, I did lots of experiments that completely failed, where we were trying to manipulate the level of carotenoids and see if that impacted their ability to freeze and thaw. Uh, just never worked. It's, it's hard to do that. So we're still waiting on the experimental evidence that will definitively say why painted turtles are painted. I love that. I love the caveat of why does this happen? Well, we don't know, but exactly. Maybe it's this way and you go and figure out if that's the way. Uh, yes. Cause I, I can imagine that the actual experimental evidence will be collected in a rather grim way. And exactly. legions of dead baby turtles will, <laughs> will be in the wake. 
But if nothing else, I learned that you can freeze a painted turtle solid. Uh, let's. I don't want people throwing their painted turtles in the freezer. Okay. <laughs> let's be careful with that. Nature can Nature. freeze a painted turtle solid. You should not freeze your painted turtle solid. Oh, no. Tons of eight-year-olds are going to take their pet <laughs> turtles right to the freezer. Stop! <laughs> we don't want that. Don't do okay. that. Oh, man. I hear those emails happening, too. So, yeah. as a Science Night disclaimer, do not freeze your painted turtles, or any turtles, that are yeah. alive. Yep. Good. Yeah, if they're dead, go ahead and freeze them. The color yeah. doesn't change when they're frozen. Um, dead. So that's cool. another bit of evidence that we know they're actively moving these carotenoids. Sure. Um, also, don't kill pa- painted turtles in the wild. Yeah, please, please don't. Please don't. Thank you so much, Beth. That was... yeah. A lot of fun. I learned about color. I learned about painted turtles. And I learned that science is hard. Yes. <laughs> that's that's exactly what I wanted you to take away from this. Because you didn't yeah. already know, James. Science is yeah. hard. <laughs> science is hard. Nature is amazing. Thank you again to Beth for talking to me. This was a couple years ago at this point, but I still think this was one of the most interesting interviews and stories that we put together on this podcast. So thank you again for listening. We're going to have more stuff coming up this summer, including a very special episode next week. So keep an eye out for that. Make sure you follow us on social media so you don't miss anything. If you want to follow me, I'm at James underscore read three on Twitter. You can follow the show at Cyanite Pod and visit our home on the web, Cyanite.com, for links to all of our social media, including our YouTube and TikTok. TikTok is getting a new resurgence in life, so go check out what we're doing over there. And you can see all of our past episodes, links to the people we talk to and the stories we talk about and our merch. Get that new cone snail merch that we just got out. Speaking of color, why not buy some new colorful cone cone snail stuff? You can find all of that at Cyanite.com. We're going to be back in one week with a new episode. But until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.